Randall Arauz is a Costa Rican biologist and activist. He is the director of the Latin American program with the Sea Turtle Restoration Program based out of Forest Knolls, California, and the president of Pretoma, a Costa Rican nonprofit founded in 1997. Pretoma, which stands for Programa Restoración de Tortugas Marinas, is a marine conservation and research organization working to protect ocean resources and promote sustainable fisheries policies in Costa Rica and Central America. Randall was also the winner of the prestigious Whitley Environmental Award in 2004. Welcome, Randall, to Ocean Currents. Well, welcome, um, and uh, thank you to you and to everyone listening to this program here in California. Thanks for coming to the studio and your one week visiting here. Um, the Sea Turtle Restoration Pro- Project, based locally here in California, has been working with you in Costa Rica for a while now. How did your two organizations link up? Well, actually, it's, it all started um, before our formal consolidation. This was back in the year 1990. I went to a sea turtle symposium, and I was seeking funds to work on the sea turtle shrimp issue. You know, when you're fishing shrimp, you catch a lot of turtles. And I actually met Todd Steiner, the director of the Sea Turtle Restoration Project in those days, looking for funds. I was trying to get him to fund my projects. And even though the funding never came through, he did like the work I was doing. And eventually, in, in the year 1994, he hired me to direct a Central American program specifically to work in Nicaragua. Wonderful. So how, what's the current relationship now? How do, you, how do the two organizations work together? Well, I started working with them in, uh, in 1994, directing a Central American program. But ever from the very beginning, we kind of like agreed that one of the objectives was to consolidate a, a local grassroots Costa Rican NGO made from Costa Rican conservationists that could work as a team with the Sea Turtle Restoration Project. So Todd Steiner urged me to, you know, to come up with this organization, which I founded in Costa Rica in 1997. And the organization is basically a bunch of biologists and conservationists and tour guides. And we created Pretoma. And ever since... Well, since then, we've enjoyed um, the support of the Sea Turtle Restoration Project. In 2002, we became of age and broke off of the Sea Turtle Restoration Project, and we became, you know, independent. However, we still work very closely on designing strategies, uh, working with with the Turtle Island Restoration Network and Todd Steiner. What are some of the primary objectives you're working on in with the communities in Costa Rica for sea turtles? Is this mostly leatherback turtles, or is this other species of turtles as well? Well, we work with all sorts of turtles, and all turtles are endangered, and they all need our help. Some are a little more endangered than others, but basically how the program started was working on nesting beaches that did not really enjoy official protection and where there were local communities that were consuming all the turtle eggs. So we would start working with these community members, always like in a friendly fashion, never you know like beating the stick on them and telling them they couldn't take turtle eggs, but convincing them that turtles can be more um, beneficial to them economically if they let them live, then, if, then rather than slaughtering them or harvesting the eggs. And, of course, the people at first are a little, you know, they don't buy it. Like, oh, how can that be? But then we've developed a volunteer program, and we bring volunteers down to Costa Rica, like, for their vacations. They can stay with, with us for a matter of weeks or even months. And they stay in these local communities' homes. Uh, they get fed by these community members, and they learn the language, and they develop, you know, very strong ties with, the com- with these community members. And now the community members support the program because they make more income doing something that isn't only legal, but it's, all, it's also very pleasant. They make great friends with foreigners. And, you know, it brings them pride in what they do now instead of when they were poachers. And, of course, they were doing something illegal. You know, not that they were going to get busted, but, you know, they were still doing something that was an illegal activity. So that way we've worked and changed their attitudes. And we do this with 
all turtle species. Uh, but of course, we have a special concern for the leatherbacks. Mm-hmm. That's a, a really positive turn for conservation is bringing the communities in to be on the positive conservation side and a great message for kids and the younger generations witnessing that instead of poaching and and that historical practice. So that's such a huge benefit I've seen happen with turtle populations and conservation groups like yourselves doing that. Um, do Does poaching still happen? Uh, poaching still happens. And what we've noticed, we have to remember for one thing that um, this poaching is very deeply, you know, set in the minds of many of these people. They've they've harvested sea turtle eggs for for many many years for generations, and you know, there's this local belief that they're aphrodisiacs, which you know, there's no foundation for that. But you know, if it's in your head, people believe it works, then it works. And of course, now we do a lot of education. But what has really persuaded people to change is precisely turtles are worth more alive than dead. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's better if you keep them alive. It'll be better for your community, for you, for your own um, sustainable development, right, in your communities. And that's the that's the route we followed. And you're right. We we see major changes. So it's possible. You know, people can change their minds. They can change their attitudes, even if they're poor, you know, people on the Costa Rican coast or, you know, people in other parts of the world. You, they can change their minds or their attitudes. Unfortunately for the turtles, that hasn't been enough. Yeah. So there's, it's more than just poaching. There's been, and that's been a long historical practice for a long time, but also the fisheries, um, interaction with fisheries. And that's been fairly recent in the historical time period of turtles. So how do the, how the two kind of played with each other as far as, obviously they've had a total downward turn for the turtle populations, but now that we're starting to turn poaching activity around a little bit, how about the fishing activity? Right. Uh, the fishing pro- activity is precisely the problem because we've been seeing that after years, decades of working in these co- coastal communities, they do change their minds, you know, and people do change their mentalities. And in spite of the good news, we see that sea turtle populations continue to decline, especially the eastern Pacific leatherback. And this has to do with fisheries. And not usually when you speak fisheries, people think about, oh, the fisherman who lives down there in that little town and he has a little boat and his father was a fisherman and his grandfather was a fisherman. But that's more traditional fishing, domestic fishing. And that has always pretty much been under control. And my experience in Costa Rica, at least, too, is when I work with these fishermen, it's like working with coastal communities. They know there's a problem. They know that there have to be limits established and, you know, that the overfishing is occurring. But the big problem with the fisheries are the international or foreign flagged fleets because these are just big investors who, you know, they've, they're never on one of these boats. The people who work on these boats are, you know, poor peasants from Asia, either um, Thailand or Malaysia or Vietnam. They're on salaries making like 50 or $60 a month. So it's almost slave labor. And they're just in it for the business. They're there to reap the resources. And when the resources are gone, they'll just sell the boats and turn to some any, any other business, mining or where, wherever the business is at, there's where they'll go. That's where they'll go, and that has been the main problem for the fisheries. These turtles are highly migratory, and all turtles are. And once they hit the oceans, they're being highly subject to being killed by these you know, industrial fisheries operations that have nothing to do with our domestic fishermen. What are some of the – can you descri- describe some of these big boats? I, I have this image of this big boat with loads of hooks, but it's also miles and miles of line. Can you just describe these boats a little bit and the types okay. of nets they're setting? Okay, well, um, right, they're not setting not nets – but they're setting lines, and they're called long lines precisely because that's what they are, extremely long lines. So for these, longs, these lines can vary in distance. For instance, Costa Rican boats usually 
have 10, 15 ton capacity and their lines are 15, 20, or 25 miles long. Whereas an international flag vessel, which means they're coming, most of these vessels, when I say international flag vessels, are Taiwanese. Just that they're flagged under different nations. They're, they're either Panamanian or Belizean or Georgian, but they're all Taiwanese. But anyway, these international flag vessels can have long lines that are up to 150 miles long. And their storage capacity can be all the way up to 200 or 300 um, or 3,000 tons. So it's, you know, it's, it's overwhelming. Uh, these boats can go out and fish for four or five or six months at a time. They don't come back to port until they're completely full. And, of course, when you add to that that they're shark finning, it just ex- makes the problem, you know, mm-hmm. increases the problem exponentially. What's the target species they're going after? Well, it, that depends. Officially, they're going after tuna or they're going after billfish, such as swordfish, or they're going after mahi-mahi. Depends the region. You know, if you're in the tropics, you're going more for mahi-mahi. Colder regions, more for billfish. And, and of course, you know, they're fishing these products. Any sharks that they catch, they say, is incidental. They won't, they won't admit or acknowledge that they're targeting sharks. But what they say is, well, any sharks that they catch, they keep. But because sharks are so, val- so valuable for their fins... And since other fishery resources are so badly depleted, such as swordfish or others, then when there's hardly anything out there and the fishermen are fishing and they have to pay bills too, they target their fisheries towards the sharks. And then they, they target the sharks for their, for their shark fins. But then, of course, we have to remember we also have several or many of these international flag vessels that are targeting sharks specifically for their fins. And like I said, they won't admit it, but a recent report was released by the Indian Ocean Tuna Commission and they're acknowledging that there's a fleet of at least 250 Taiwanese longliners in the eastern Pacific Ocean targeting sharks exclusively for their fins. Interesting. When did shark finning become so popular? Has this always been going on historically? It just seems that in the last few years we've heard this as this terrible, destructive, widespread, huge mass problem. But how long has this practice been going on? Okay, well... Uh, this shark finning problem or the crisis has started pretty much with the introduction of the of the long line technology, oh, which so, was okay. introduced in the Eastern Pacific in the 50s. But consumption of shark fin soup has been going on for thousands of years. In Asia, it used to be a culinary, um, ex, what would you call it? Exquisite uh, thing? Um, a culinary... A- I know the word you're trying to mention. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, back in like thousands of years ago, it was reserved exclusively for emperors. It was something that only... Very exclusive. Yeah, for ex- very high-class people in imperial China. Um, after the Cultural Revolution, you know, in the war in China, and when China became communist, it was very repressed. It was bour- bourgeois? Bourgeois. Bour- it was bourgeois. Yeah, that's the So word. anything <laughs> that had to do with fancy or high-class was totally repressed. But after the 70s, after Richard Nixon went to China and normalized relations, as you know, China has been recovering economically. It has turned into an economic power. And now there is a Chinese middle class that did not exist um, 40 or 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. After, after the economy was freed, now there is this, you know, all this economic growth. And now the, there's more freedom in China as well. So in the Chinese culture, if you're a a very prosperous person, like the emperors used to be, well, if you want to show off or you want to show your prosperity to other people, what you do is you buy the shark fin soup. When a woman marries, her father or, you know, the father of the bride has to invite the shark fin soup for the party. And at business meetings, 
when you have you know these high level CEOs meeting anywhere, uh, whoever's in charge of the meeting wants to show that he has a prosperous company, he invites a shark fin soup as well. So it's a cultural thing, and it goes all the way back then. But the point is, this all started to be a problem here in, in the Eastern Pacific or in America around the 80s and 90s, which is when these international flag fleets started coming to mm. these waters specifically for the shark fins. And remember China, after the economy was liberated, you have this middle class, which now is estimated to be 300 million Chinese people. So a whole new market is opened in the, in the last few decades, and this market is demanding shark fin soup. So that's why the fleets moved over here. That's why there's more and more boats, and that's why it's become more of a and more of an issue mm-hmm. as you know more recent times have come about. So we're talk we started on that with turtles, then we realized the shark finning problem. This is a huge international conservation issue. What is your group trying to do right now to address these problems? Well, like you mentioned, it's turtles, it's sharks, and everything boils down to overfishing. And Sharks and turtles have several biological characteristics that make them extremely susceptible to fishing. Like, let's say any normal fish, a tuna or a rockfish, they lay thousands of eggs, you know, and they lay eggs every season. But sharks and turtles have a totally different reproductive strategy. You know, they only have very few young. It takes them years, you know, decades to reach sexual maturity. So these are animals that need to live very long lives. But if their mortality is high cause for, you know, other sorts of fisheries for shrimp or for rockfish or whatever, well, it really puts a dent in their population. So what we're trying to do with the Sea Turtle Restoration Project is give this a more, a, a more of a holistic approach. And at the moment, the only ecosystem solution for this overfishing problem is we have to stop fishing so much. We have to reduce fishing. And, of course, when we come up with these proposals, like we need moratoriums, we need closures, lots of people don't want to hear this, especially in the fishing industry. And, you know, that's where the battle comes. You know, we really have to um, put a grip on these fisheries. And it's okay. We need to find better technologies. We need to create reserves, you know, marine protected areas. We need to tackle this problem on, on, on all the different fronts. But probably our main tool is reduction of fishing effort. And if we reduce fishing effort and we use different technologies and if we have marine protected areas, if we complement that with other tools, then we're talking business. But if we want to maintain the current level of fisheries and say, oh, we can maintain this fishery as long as we use a special hook, for instance, that's not going to do the job. The job might help help turtles, but it's not necessarily going to help other animals, the sharks or the seabirds. And basically, fisheries is the problem. And we need to curtail the fisheries somehow. Otherwise, all these other efforts we're doing, and they're not going to work. That's a huge economic problem. For our listeners that are just tuning in, I'm talking with Randall Arouse. He's a Costa Rican biologist working with the Sea Turtle Restoration Project here in California, as well as Protoma, a Costa Rican nonprofit based out of uh, Central uh, Costa Rica. And we're talking about um, the highly migratory species that are using the oceans and industrial fishing practices um, that are really impacting these populations widespread. So we're trying to attack the issue from lots of different angles, and the real issue being the the heavy effort of fishing. What are some of the uh, strategies as far as trying to educate international management agencies about these? It seems like a big political process and education process, and what are some of those strategies that you're trying to do to, to change these methods? Okay, well, yes, you're right. It's a very long process. It's not going to happen overnight. Unfortunately, 
for the Leatherbacks at least. You know, Leatherbacks are in, under such a big crisis. Yeah, let's hope they have enough time. But um, well, we're trying to attack this problem on several fronts. Um, on one hand, we want to try to find immediate solutions. You know, what can be done on the short term. But on the other hand, we have to go the long route. We have to go the international policy way, even though we know it's going to take forever. So we have to take the two-prong approach. Let's do the, our homework and work on the on the policy. But on the other hand, what can we do now? So, like for instance, what can we do now? We're collaborating to do research and, and create awareness locally. So, for instance, in Costa Rica, we've been doing research on movements of sea turtles and of sharks. If we need to create marine protected areas, where should these marine protected areas be? Especially for the leatherback turtle, which is you know the great concern. And then we we do this research, and then we show this information to the Costa Rican people. You know, the Costa Rican people are very proud of our conservation record around the world. You know, we're we're acknowledged as one of the most conservation-minded countries, and the Costa Rican people are proud about that. So we tell them, well, look, you know, the leatherbacks are disappearing, and if we don't do anything about it, it's going to be every Costa Rican's responsibility. So we need, for instance, a corridor here and there, you know, to protect the migration of the turtles or the sharks from one island to another. But... We're going to have to do this in a regional fashion. Costa Rica alone can't do it because they're highly migratory. So what we need is we need to work at political levels. So in order to convince, for instance, our Minister of Foreign Affairs that we need to be talking to Ecuador, well, then we move the Costa Rican people so that the Costa Rican people can get their feeling or their sentiment to the Minister of Foreign Affairs so that he can know that if he takes these moves, he's going to be backed up by the Costa Rican people. So it's a long process, but that's the way it's been working. And then it goes from the regional efforts to a more global effort. And what we've been doing, again, is we've been, using, we've been using Costa Rica as a spearhead. The Costa Rican government has expressed willingness to take lead in several of these processes at the UN, at the Convention for Migratory Species, at the Inter-American Tuna Convention. And like I said, again, it's a very slow process, and sometimes it's frustrating because you know, you come out of these meetings with the resolution and you say, well, now what? But they're all little building blocks and they're all necessary. And eventually, you know, they all come together to to attain the results we're looking for, which is a, an efficient reduction in the fishing effort in the region. So is that the main goal for all the work is to really reduce fishing effort in the eastern Pacific? That's one of my main goals, exactly, because it's it's the only thing that's going to save the sea turtles. It's the only thing that's going to save the sharks. You know, when when they talk about sea turtles, they want to use all these different types of hooks. When they talk about sharks, they want to, they want closed areas. They want you know different sharks on no take lists, for instance. So you have different approaches for sharks and for turtles. I don't work with seabirds, but seabird people have their other approaches as well. But the bottom line is, if we don't reduce the fishing effort. None of this is going to work. You know, something might help for the sharks, but it won't help for the turtles, or it might help the turtles, but not the seabirds. So if we reduce fishing effort, and then we all do our homework with our own little species, then we'll be talking business. Mm-hmm. So the fishing effort is a result of of money and food. And what do you think some of the alternatives are for these fishing companies internationally to still have economic benefit and produce food for the world, but not have such an impact on the ocean's fisheries. There mm-hmm. seems to be, need to be some type of incentive to make this effort to reduce. What do you think mm-hmm. are some solutions on that end? Well, un- unfortunately, I, I get that question a lot. And unfortunately, what's driving most of these industrial fisheries is plain greed. 
You have to remember, lots of these fisheries have been moving from one place to another. They deplete areas. They go to another. They're not seeking sustainability. The fisheries can be held sustainably. It's already known. I mean, it can happen. But these companies are just way too greedy. And again, I want to make the difference between, you know, the local fishermen here, the domestic fishermen on the coastline who, you know, have been in this for generations and they want to continue to be to be in this right. for generations. You know, they would like to see their kids probably be fishermen, although more and more fishermen are saying, I don't really don't want my kid to be in this business because right. it's not such a good business. And that's because these industrial fishermen have just been way too greedy and they push these fish populations over the edge. And it's just a process, you know, so. You know, some people with a more fatally fatal view say, well, they're not going to stop until they wipe everything out. But I think they can be stopped if, as, you know, different nations, you know, who are concerned about this, we get together and we make them stop. There are international laws that we can make them abide by, but it's going to take some muscle power. And that's why we have to work at the U.N. and, you know, these other international forums. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Ocean Currents. And I've been speaking with Randall Arouse, a biologist from Costa Rica, working with the Sea Turtle Restoration Project here in West Marin, California, also is the president of Pretoma, a nonprofit organization based out of Costa Rica, working together to address sea turtle and shark fitting issues in the, in the Pacific Ocean. So stay with us, please. Welcome back. Randall Arouse is with us. He's a biologist from Costa Rica, and we're talking about uh, leatherback turtle conservation and, and shark conservation. There's some very big efforts afoot to try to help conserve these populations with practices going on in the Pacific. And Randall, let's talk a little bit more about the shark finning issue there was there's this international fleet coming in to do shark finning and they're taking thousands and thousands of sharks on one haul because they tossed the carcass over of the shark and pretty barbarically it's a it's a live fish that's getting its fins cut off um how have the laws changed in that since that time of um landing all these all these fins without the carcasses and then there was a law that said they had to bring the carcasses back can you give us a little history of how that worked and and where are we now today with that practice okay well yeah sure there's there's two parts of the story about the shark finning in Costa Rica and one has to do with the local Costa Rican fleet and the other one has to do with the international longline fleet that later became Costa Ricanized and I'll explain how that happened but anyway by the late 70s, Costa Rican fishery resources, the coastal resources, were depleted. And Costa Rica has Cocos Island, and we have this great big EEZ that was not fished. And the government's motto back in the late 70s was, Costa Rica lives with its back to the sea. So we need to exploit all that ocean water that we don't use. So in 1982, the Costa Rican government had the great idea to invite a mission from Taiwan. And this mission from Taiwan came to Costa Rica to teach us this new technique that was called longlining. But when they started teaching the Costa Ricans this longlining technique, they saw, man, there's a fortune to be made here. So screw this. They stayed in Costa Rica, and now in Costa Rica, we have one of the biggest longline fleets in the world. Now 380, well, definitely in Latin America, but 380 of those boats are Costa Rican boats. And these are the smaller boats that have, you know, 15, 20 long, 20 mile long lines. Uh, they don't have freezer capacity, and they usually fish within 200 miles of Costa Rica. But then we have 150 boats that are Costa Rican flagged. But if you look at the owner of the boat, their name is Juan or Sen, you know, and they're they're Taiwanese citizens. And it turns out that they are 
the same mission members that came in 1982 or their children who stayed here. So, you know, they came to train the Costa Ricans, and what they did was they set up their own business, they brought in their own boats, and they became filthy rich exploiting the shark fin resources. Um, this has been going on then since 1982, but in 1998, Costa Rica had another great idea. Let's allow foreign fleets, or the, the foreign boats, the ones from Taiwan that are not flagged in Costa Rica, let's allow them to land in Costa Rica too. And the first 15 boats landed in 1998, and by 2002 and 2003, we're talking now 40 or 50 boats a month. You know, on these huge boats with 100, 150 ton capacities coming into Punta Arenas, our main port, landing sharks and shark fins. So all this was happening, and the Costa Rican fishermen started not liking it. And they thought, we need a regulation to stop shark finning because all these international boats are landing fins in Costa Rica. Then they're getting exported. And if you look at the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization statistics, they say Costa Rica is a big shark fin exporter. And the Costa Ricans say, hey, it's not us. It's international fleets. But technically speaking, it's a Costa Rican export. So in 2001, I was working with the Costa Rican fishermen, and we persuaded the government to come up with a shark finning ban. And the shark finning ban said, no shark finning, of course, and to control it, the sharks have to be landed with the fins attached. And this was considered a victory. But then, throughout 2002 and 2003, we were busting them left and right. And we, I would send um, Pretoma members to Punta Arenas with video cameras, and we were catching boats landing shark fins in the middle of the night with no fishery inspectors at private docks, which is another illegal activity. So, yeah, we, we were busting them left and right. And in 2003... Uh, a new regulation came into place, which we also had to shoot down because then what they do is, like, they have this regulation that doesn't work, so they came up with a new regulation, which was basically a, a whole bunch of loopholes which would allow shark finning to occur. So, again, we had to do lawsuits, and it's been a permanent fight back and forth. So where is it right now as far as in Costa Rica with shark finning? Okay. Well, um, as as this whole campaign progressed, we persuaded the Costa Rican um, legislative, what would you call it, like our deputies, the congressmen, mm -hmm. we persuaded them to come up with the shark finning law. And the shark finning law, which was approved in March of 2005, says, and now it's by law, sharks have to be landed with their fins attached naturally and period. Because, well, well this, this law was passed in March of 2005, and we would have thought that was a victory. Now there's no loopholes. The law is very simple and solid and direct. Sharks with their fins attached, period. But then, and this is just to show you what the fishery authorities are willing to do, and by the way, the Costa Rican fishermen were totally cool with this regulation. And, you know, we go to the ports and we have video shots of them landing the sharks with the fins attached, but the international fleets and the freezer boats and the boats that belong to the Costa Rican Taiwanese fishermen, they didn't like the regulation. So then the Costa Rican government came up with a new interpretation, and they said, oh, okay, fins attached. But if we look at the dictionary... The dictionary says um, attached means stuck back together again with glue or with tape or tied back on. So they would allow the Taiwanese fishermen basically to fin sharks, but right before they came to Punta Arenas, they would just tie the fins back on. And, of course, this creates another series of loopholes. We had to go to the Costa Rican attorney three times, and we won this, court, this case in court three times. And as of August of 2006, sharks had to be landed with their fins attached naturally to the body. Wow. And Costa Rica is the first country in the world to demand this. And right now, the Economic Union is studying to follow Costa Rica. 
El Salvador, Colombia, Panama, all those countries followed Costa Rica's policy because it's the easiest and best way to make sure that there's no shark finning going on. So that's been one of the positive spins of our of our whole campaign. Wow, a lot of work to actually make that happen. Why do you think it's taken so long for the gov- Costa Rican government to get behind um, this need as far as policies go? The, all those loopholes kind of just delay the actual um, action. So what's been the story there? Well, I'm in a very um, tight position here. Like I'm, how would you say, I'm, I'm out on a limb quite a bit because I'm working with the Foreign Affairs Office. I'm working with... with um, the environment ministry, and I have very good working relationships with them, but I have terrible relations with the Fishery Institute. And it's it's hard to say exactly what's going on. People ask me, is it corruption? And it's like, well, how can it not be corruption? But I don't have the evidence. But why do I always have to go to court? Why do we keep on winning? And it's because we're right. And, you know, here I am. They have technicians. I'm a technician. But as biologists, we end up going to a lawyer. And we end up explaining to a lawyer the technical facts, and the lawyers always resolve on our side. So it's like, as technicians, shouldn't we be able to agree? Why do we have to go to a lawyer to make to take a decision? But that's been the bottom line, and that's where we always have to go. So it's it's a it's a funny position to be in because you know I don't want to go out and say the Costa Rican government's corrupt, but on the other hand, what's going on here with the Fishery Institute? Why? Don't they just respect the regulations as they're written? Why do they always interpret the regulations to favor the shark finners? Mm -hmm. And I really don't have the answer to that, but how can it not be corruption? That would be the other question. Yeah, but as of 2006, it sounds like they are taking a a good role in being a leader for other countries as well in regards to the issue. Right. Unfortunately, we still have an issue in Costa Rica, and it's the use of the private docks. We still have these international flag vessels landing in Costa Rica. We want to get rid of them. And these international flag vessels are landing at private docks. Our laws say if you import products into the nation, they must be imported through a public facility. And that law exists in every country in the world. It's only logical. Well, in Costa Rica, the law exists too. And the law is applied to everybody, every sort of fisherman, every type of importer, except the Taiwanese shark finners. They're allowed to land at private docks where there's no guarantee that the public interest can be respected. And that's our, still one of our main loopholes. And we're not trying to kick out the Taiwanese fleet. We just want them to respect our regulations. And if they're obligated to land at a private dock, as the law says so, they leave by, on their own. They don't have to be kicked out because they can't respect regulations. They're shark finning. And if they can't shark fin, they're not okay there anymore. Mm-hmm. Now, I understand in the United States... Uh, NOAA banned shark finning in U.S. waters by U.S. fleet, I think, in 2000 or 2002. Um, But does shark finning still happen in U.S. waters, do you think? Um, I wouldn't know. But, again, the United States has been a good ally at these international meetings, you know, against shark finning. Uh, The problem are the domestic regulations. Like, we don't have a strong enough ally. For instance, when we go to the U.N. and Costa Rica is calling for a fins-attached policy, we want want the whole world to have it. Well, the United States backs us up, but the United States can't call for a global requirement to to land sharks with the fins attached because the United States doesn't have the regulation itself. Right. So, you know, that's something that the general public can help us at. Talk to your policymakers and tell them you want the United States to have a strict policy of fins attached because if the United States has that policy, then they can be stronger allies in other parts of the world. So, you know, that's the problem with the U.S. policy. It isn't strong enough. So, again, you know, it allows for loopholes. 
So even though they have a ban in, of, of it in U.S. waters, which would, in my mind would mean you can't land shark fins in U.S. waters, um, what I'm thinking of is international boats coming in and how do we know if they're in our waters or not? Is there what type of enforcement? But based on the interpretation of law, are you saying that shark finning could they could still land sharks in United States waters or for uh, shark fins? Okay, well, the law in the United States says, okay, it's forbidden to shark fin, and, and everybody in the world agrees to that. But the issue is, how are you going to enforce the shark finning ban? And what most coast countries have preferred is to allow a system where the sharks, where the shark fins are landed separately from the body, but the weight of the fins have to respect a certain ratio of the weight of the body. And that's where it gets really, really messy. Mm -hmm. Because according to, you know, the best scientific knowledge I know about, at least, this percentage is 5% of the dressed carcass of the shark. In other words, it's 5% fins. Like if you're a fishery inspector, mm -hmm. it's 5% of the, of the weight in fins and 95% of the weight in carcass. And a carcass means it has no heads, it has no guts, and it has no fins. It has no head, guts, or fins. So that's a carcass. So 95% and 5%. But then you have other studies saying, oh, wait, but it's not the the dressed weight, you know, it's not the carcass, it's the whole body weight. But then other studies say, well, if it's a whole body weight, it's 2%. If it's a carcass, it's 5%. But then other resolutions don't say if it's a carcass or dressed weight, you know, or a whole weight. And then it depends on the species. If it's a thresher shark, it has bigger fins, you know. So And then it just gets really messy, you know. It's going to be some percentage with some sharks. It depends if the shark is dressed or if it's a carcass, you know. So it just gets really complicated. And by using these methods, you open loopholes. Because imagine you're a fishery inspector, and this boat is landing 80 tons or 100 tons of shark products. Are you going to be there sitting there and weighing all the shark fins and weighing all the carcasses, adding them all up, and then doing a rule of thumb to make sure it abides by the 5%? And what if it's 5.5%? Are you going to allow it? Or 5.2%? <laughs> know, so then does that mean they shark fins or not? So it just gets incredibly messy. And the easiest, best way is been attached, it's allowed. Not attached, it's illegal. Right. So overall, we've got these uh, reduced populations of sharks happening in our oceans. What could this mean for the ocean overall, the oceans facing all these other threats of climate change and changing ocean conditions? And how does the reduction of sharks overall in the ecosystem, what could be the long-term impact of that? Well, it, it's pretty scary when you think about it. For one thing, we have to remember diversity fosters diversity. That's one of the principles, you know, of ecology. That means if you have a lot of predators, you have a lot of predated, predated animals upon. Mm -hmm. And sharks, you know, so you need, um, what would you call, compound structures of, of sharks to sustain these very complex communities of animals in reefs or in tropical waters and pelagic waters. If you reduce the diversity of sharks, then you're going to reduce the diversity of everything they prey upon. And lots of what they prey upon are commercial species that we depend on as well. And all this is as theory, right? What could happen? But let's look at a real concrete example of what did happen. Studies have just been released of the northeastern coast of the U.S. where shark, shark populations have been depleted for uh, something like 90 or 95 percent during the last decades. And there's a fishery up there of scallops. And co whole communities, coastal communities, have artisanally used these scallops for their, you know, like a, a small fishery. And it's been sustainable for hundreds of years. Well, they wiped out the sharks. Oh, big deal. We still have our scallops, you would think. Well, there are cow nose rays 
upon which these sharks feed. So now that the sharks are gone, the cow-nose rays have had demographic explosions. Mm -hmm. And what do cow-nose rays feed on? They feed on scallops. So now they wiped out the scallops, and a century-old fishery upon which many coastal communities depended on was wiped out. So this is a beautiful example of how it can, you know, even trickle down the chain and hurt our coastal economy communities. Yeah, for the other example here, too, is with the excess nutrients coming into the ocean and um, excessive jelly blooms. There's tons and tons of jellyfish in certain areas. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, we need those jelly predators like ocean sunfish and turtles, leatherback turtles. And, you know, bringing it around back to turtles again, here on the coast of California, very productive upwelling zone, cold water. We get a lot of jellies naturally. And this happens to be a destination foraging area for leatherback turtles. And recently, there have been some requests for permits to fish long lines in these waters. Can you give us an update about that and what the Sea Turtle Restoration Project is doing in response to that effort? Okay, well, first, like you were mentioning, the leatherbacks like to eat jellyfish. Uh, This is an upwelling area. These waters are very productive, which means there's lots of, you know, little fish, you know, lots of fish being born. And the leatherbacks feed on jellyfish. Uh, which, you know, are also occurring in these areas. And they have to eat lots of them. Jellyfish are not very nutritious, so they have to eat lots of them. And they keep these jellyfish populations in check. And a hypothesis that's being being shopped around right now, there's no evidence that this is true, but you're just following our, our, our logic. Well, jellyfish are in this area because there's lots of productivity. And jellyfish feed on zooplankton. Zooplankton are little, like, crustacea and also lots of fish larvae. And lots of these fish larvae are of commercial species of fish. So jellyfish feed on that and leatherbacks feed on the jellyfish. So if we don't have the leatherbacks feeding on the jellyfish, then we're going to have these jellyfish explosions. And the jellyfish explosions are going to overeat the zooplankton. And guess what? It might hurt our, our economies. You know, commercially interested, I mean, commercially important fish for us might be among the predators or the prey of the, of the jellyfish. So again, you know, it's, it's all these possibilities, but we have to remember these are ecological chains, and it's all going to filter. It's all going to cascade down these, you know, these webs. Mm-hmm. And you know, this is only a hypothesis, but yeah, the the removal of the leatherbacks could have a very hard impact on our commercial fisheries. It's necessary for them to be there. That's why it's so important. You know, now that we're doing more studies on leatherbacks, we know now that leatherbacks have very definite migratory routes. So instead of trying to go out there. And, you know, save the entire Pacific Ocean, which, you know, would be a logistic nightmare. There, we do know that there are areas that leatherbacks frequent, and they're concentrated in certain areas in space and time, and that during these time frames, they need to be strictly protected. And these coasts of California are very important habitat for these turtles. We have to remember, these turtles are coming all the way from Indonesia, where their yeah, nesting grounds are. that's what's are. amazing, is in the, in the Atlantic, the nest down in uh, the Caribbean area, mm-hmm. and they go up the coast. Here, they cross the entire Pacific Ocean. That's a feat in itself to feed here. And I just I just think that's an amazing fact for, you know, this turtle, this huge, slow-moving, well, it's actually not that slow, but coming here to feed. So I just think just alone, right there, to cross that feat is huge, and then the threats they could face just take it away so quickly. So here, what are their threats um, off the coast of California? Well, um, 
all the runoff and all the pollution off the coast of California will definitely be a um, an issue. But to be honest, I'm more involved with the with the fisheries issues. So I'm yeah, not, I'm not sure what's going on here in California, but in Costa Rica, for instance, uh, we have nesting beaches, and our turtles in Costa Rica, in spite of being on the same continent, you know, we have leatherback turtles too. And one would have thought that the leatherbacks of Costa Rica come up to California and forage, but they don't. In the Eastern Pacific, we have two very distinct populations. We have the California population that nests in Indonesia mm-hmm. and forages in California, and we have the Costa Rican population that nests in Costa Rica and it forages off the coast of Chile. Um, but our nesting population is very, very endangered from coastal development. You know, Costa Rica now is a big eco-tour destination, and I'm sure lots of people listening to this to this program have been in Costa Rica or they're planning to go in Costa Rica. And just consider when you're at these coastal areas and these beaches, uh, your impact mainly on the turtles. You know, keep the turtle beaches dark. Most of our most of our beaches are turtle beaches, and you know we have to have these considerations for the turtles. What do you think, um, turtles and sharks too? What do you think they're? Uh, how could they be impacted by ocean temperature changes or climate change overall? I should say. Okay, well, in, in several ways it can be tragic. Well, in one way, for instance, one of the most important ways is their sex determination. Sex in turtles is determined by the temperature at which the eggs are incubated. And we know now, for instance, that if you take 100 green turtle eggs and incubate them at 29 degrees, you're going to get 50-50 sex rates. But a couple degrees higher, and you're going to get 100% females. Wow. Um, Pardon, yeah, females. And a couple degrees lower, you're going to get 100% males. So um, just imagine what climate change is going to do like in players in Costa Rica. Also, there is a... There's a limit or a roof temperature after which the eggs just aren't viable anymore. Mm-hmm. So if the temperature keeps on increasing, first we're going to bias all the, all, the, all the sex rates towards females, and then we could even reach temperatures at which the eggs aren't even going to develop. Of course, that'll mean that probably the population, the nesting population, will just start migrating north. And who knows, some decades from now, you might have nesting turtles here in Marin County. Wow. Um, but yeah, the other problems, of course, are food supply. How are the, how's global warming going to affect... Just the food supply, like how the productivity of the oceans, the plankton, the whole, um, you know, the conveyor belt that's occurring in the ocean, all the salt. Yeah, it's, it's anyone's guess, but that can, that's, that's Plus a very sea level concern. rise as well, the right? On the nesting beaches. The sea level rise, the nesting beaches will be buried. And then, you know, how long does it take for a beach to be created? I, I have no idea, really, but yeah. I'm sure it's not going to happen as fast as the sea levels are going to rise. So, yeah, there's many issues that are coming with global warming. What can we do? This is, I mean, these are two big topics that really weigh heavy on me because I just feel like they're just so big, but we all want to do something. And I think there's got to be some hope that we can generate for people about getting involved, getting more knowledgeable and, and doing something. What are some recommendations you have for helping to conserve uh, populations of sharks or getting involved with the, the conservation efforts there and also with sea turtles? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, for one thing, the political support, that is that is key because lo- lots of the political changes are going to come through political decisions and those will be heavily weighed by uh, popular support. You know, if people show the politicians what they want and then, well, politician wants votes, he'll he'll give the people what they want. So it's it's really important to, you know, to, to support us on these, you know, sign on petitions. Sometimes people say, oh, big deal. Why should I sign on? But it really does help, you know, if you can, if, if we can possibly land tens of thousands or millions of petitions on, an, on, a, on a politician's desk, that helps. Also, just spreading the word, telling friends, you know, getting other people to express their concerns. And 
lots of people know politicians, you know, they're related somehow or they're friends of one or, or whatever. So, you know, it's really important to get the word out there. And just now I mentioned how, like, also, if you're planning on traveling to Costa Rica or traveling to any of these developing countries where sea turtles occur, don't buy sea turtle products, for instance. Don't buy hawksbill shell. And, and if you see people in these areas selling it, tell them, you know, it's illegal. Make them feel They're know, illegal to bring back to the U.S. anyway. Yeah, they're illegal to bring back to the U.S., you know, so, you know, and tell the sellers or the vendors that they shouldn't be doing this either. Also, um, when you buy, you vote, too. So as a buyer, for instance, if you're going to Costa Rica on a tour, buy tours or use hotels that are eco-hotels that are, that are certified that they're doing the right thing. You know, you can, you can um, you know, use businesses that are more eco-friendly, and in that way, you're also helping. Also, well, you can contribute to the Sea Turtle Restoration Project. There, there's always volunteer work to do, and, yeah, we always, you know, need, you know, resources, video cameras. Um, professional assistance of any sort, and if you, I'm sure if you call the San Francisco office and you know you have time to to volunteer, there's always work to do. Um, I'll just mention a couple websites for folks. Uh, the Sea Turtle Restoration Project has a nice new website that has a lot of information about uh, the turtle issues and the shark issues and what's going on in, in Latin America, the stuff that Randall's leading, and that address is seaturtles.org, and they have some other links on there. Um, about what fish is good to buy using the power of your dollar. And also uh, another website that's a link off of there that I think is really interesting, and it's more about the health impacts of eating some of these fish, is gotmercury.org. And a really interesting little cal- uh, calculator where you can type in a type of fish and the amount you might eat, and it tells you how much mercury you're getting. And that's another really interesting resource. I just went to that the other night, and I was really surprised and I don't eat that much fish. I was really surprised. So there's some on website web resources there as well. And Randall, thank you again for sharing all this and doing the incredible work you're doing in Costa Rica. We really appreciate it. Okay, well, thank you, and thank you to everyone out there in Marin County that listened to this. And if you have time, you can also check my website, which is, uh, well, I'll have to say it in Spanish, but I'll try to make it the most pronounceable in English as possible, Tortuga Marina. Dot O-R-G. That means sea turtle in Spanish. And it has an English version on the webpage. So if you want to check it out, be my yeah, guest. Yeah, I saw that. It's actually spelled out for you. It's T-O-R-T-U-G-A-M-A-R-I-N-A dot O-R-G. So please take a look at those resources on the web and learn more. Thanks again, Randall. Okay, thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Ocean Currents. And we'll be back next month with another topic related to the ocean.